Welcome to another episode of the Final Word Cricket Podcast. My name is Jeff Lennon. Adam Collins is with me and we are convening on on a wondrous day. It is a day of the bowler running out the non-striking batsman. A day in cricket that that both Adam and I, that warms parts of our hearts that perhaps should not even be warmed. Ravi Ashwin in the IPL uh, turned around and ran out Joss Butler at the non-striker's end. The internet has melted down. Cricketers across the world are throwing buns at each other. It's it's all happening. It's all gone on. Uh, it's 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 one of those days that just, just stirs the juices, Adam. I listen to lots of podcasts, Jeff, and I know you do as well. And one of the tropes on, on the US politics podcast, whenever something big goes down, they say, emergency podcast. And I think that if we weren't already planning to record today, Jeff, that this almost would have been worthy of us doing an emergency podcast, such as our deep interest in um, uh, Law 41.16 or uh, running out the non-striker and how many times, how many hours we've invested in our life to talking to each other and other people about it. So this is the perfect forum. So you know, strap in. I think, yeah, I think we've just, um, we've, we've been limbering up for this episode for our entire careers, <laughs> just, <laughs> just banking information away. One of the first things that, occurred to me when I woke up this morning and started seeing the story and watching the replays and all the rest of it is this this interesting tension with the way it's still referred to as the man cad it's something that I, I feel a bit um conflicted and, and not in quite entirely decided on this because mostly my instinct is I don't like the fact that it's referred to as a man cad because that mode of dismissal has had so much stigma and negativity about it for decades and decades. And the implication through all of that is that Vinu Mancad is is devious and underhanded and unsportsmanlike and a cheat. Um, and it also means that the only thing that's remembered about him is this one particular act. You know, Vinu Mancad was a brilliant all-rounder for India. He made double hundreds. He had 10-wicket matches. He made a couple of thousand test match runs. He had one of the biggest uh, partnership records of all time, 400-plus. He... he battled away against Don Bradman's team in, uh, in, in the late 40s in, in a series where they were completely overwhelmed, but, but Mancad refused to give in. He, he did so much as a cricketer, and it always seems like a bit of a shame to have him reduced down to this, this one uh, association. You know, Mancad, there aren't many cricketers who've taken five wicket hauls, five five-wicket hauls and made five test hundreds. The great hypercourse put this on Twitter last night. There's like half a dozen or something like that, which I completely agree. There's a reason why the MCC, when they updated their uh, laws in 2017, elected not to use the, the word Mancad anywhere in their description. They purposely left it out because um, they think the... That, you know, well, it is a fallacy. Uh, that, like, we'll go into what the MCC did a couple of years ago, but the idea that there's something underhanded about this and the idea that um, the burden or the, the bowler should be turned into a villain or a pariah or even uh, in this equation is something they tried to help fix by the language they used and, and the, the nomenclature they used when redrafting uh, the law, um, which was in order to make it the onus, putting the onus back onto the batsman rather than uh, it being... Um, about you know the bowler being mischievous and what or, or about it being the bowler's decision almost at all it, it was it's basically the MCC ruling says the the responsibility is entirely on the batsman to be within his ground at all times yeah that's right and I spoke to Fraser Stewart who runs all the laws at the MCC a couple of years ago to get a really good handle on why they did it and how they did it and look his attitude towards it is is that the spirit of cricket critique is nonsense because um, if it's if you're 
doing something outside of the laws, that is to say, if you're backing up beyond the, the crease before the bowlers let go of the ball, aren't you in turn breaking the spirit of cricket as well? I mean, like, it's a bit of a circular argument, and I understand people can come at this from different perspectives, but a strict interpretation of the law is simply that you, you take off after the, the ball is bowled, or when the ball is bowled, rather. And look, I understand that what happened in the IPL yesterday uh, lends itself to a discussion about uh, the, the finer points of the law, especially the expectation of when the ball would have left Ashwin's hand. And, and that's, we'll go into that. But my frustration is, is that whenever this happens, no matter what the circumstances, and bear in mind, it's a fairly rare occurrence in professional cricket, but whenever it does bob up, that the instinct of people, uh, and, 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 you know, James Coyne, a colleague of uh, ours in the UK, made the point last night, it tends to be former professional cricketers as well. Um, those who have played in the game, it's like a, a, a code of ethics of those who have played at the top flight who, who push back pretty hard. And those who perhaps have a, a slightly more are slightly more interested in the nitty-gritty of the laws themselves, uh, want to see it applied more strictly and, and want to take the, the, the ethical and morality side out of this conversation. And, and that's certainly where we've fallen on this over the years. But, you know, the, the conversation last night was just as predictable. It's probably a little bit of a shame that it wasn't a, a cut-and-dry case. The fact that there is um, a degree of interpretation required to say whether Ashwin uh, was entitled to appeal after dislodging the bales on that occasion due to the way he stopped in his action. But uh, for mine... It wouldn't have mattered had it been clear-cut that the conversation would have been roughly the same. That is, where's the warning, which is nonsense, and we'll come to that, and, and that somehow the bowler has done something wrong. The other thing, though, that I want to say is that I don't want to be dismissive of the side of people who do feel really strongly about this, and I've been having a lot of conversations with people on Twitter and so on today, and, and some people feel genuinely quite emotive and quite strong about it, and, and I get that. I understand that there's a sort of idea that cricket is is a place of goodness or a place of propriety it's in my view a slightly misguided idea because i think cricket's always been full of cheats and charlatans and dodginess going right back to you know wg grace and beyond but a lot of people are very sincere about it and i don't i don't want to sort of seem like i'm saying you're all idiots and 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 i don't i'm not prepared to hear that point of view it, it is genuine that feeling is genuine I, I would query it on a sort of rational basis that it, it doesn't seem to add up with a lot of other things in cricket. But then a lot of things in cricket don't add up. It's a bit like um, it's a bit like I wouldn't be a huge fan of this proposal to put numbers on the backs of Test cricket uniforms just because I like the archaic nature of the way that things look in an old-fashioned style. And some people would find that ridiculous. But I think for a lot of people, even though it is a bit archaic and it doesn't necessarily fit with everything else the fact that this convention does exist is something that they feel fond of and they, they feel warm about that idea and so they don't like the idea of it being under threat. Yeah. Look, I see that as well. I think a lot of the people who we've been um, scrapping with on Twitter absolutely have the best interest of the game at heart. They're people that care deeply for the, the idea of the spirit of cricket, but it, it, it's important to draw a distinction between the preamble uh, of the laws in the little blue book and the fact that the MCC have consistently elected not to put this in there uh, and to understand that modern cricket has evolved. Now, the reason why we are even having this conversation is that in 2011, or rather it was late 2010, but the, series, the Ashes series of 10-11 was when this was drawn into focus when um, they were using DRS to retrospectively call no balls for the first time. So they were checking for no balls um, 
So down at the business end, you'd get ball tracking and so forth, but you'd, you'd first of all uh, make sure the bowler hadn't broke the, the front line. And in doing so, you were seeing a, a range of examples of what we were calling at the time man candidates, people who, batsmen rather, who were well outside their ground when the ball was being delivered. Um, just you know, and, and I'm not saying that it was necessarily done with um, impure intent on all fronts. I mean, test cricket isn't exactly where you're traditionally looking to steal a run, but it just became convention that when the bowler got into, you know, about to launch into their stride, you just walk a couple of yards, knowing that you were never going to be subjected to a to a run out. Alistair Cook was a was a was a batsman in particular who they'd regularly show stills of him being you know a, a yard and a half um, down the strip when the ball was let go. So he could have been um, run out several times in that series when he made seven hundred plus runs. Uh, and even last year, I noticed it. Uh, watching Jasper Boomerah bowl from side on uh, at the new Perth Stadium. I took a photo of him letting the ball go, and Tim Payne was a metre out of his crease. Now, again, I'm not saying that they're trying to steal a base using baseball speak, but it is something that's become part of the game. And in white ball cricket, 2020 cricket, perhaps even more acutely, um, an extra inch or an extra foot, or you know, I'm using imperial measurements for reasons I can't quite explain right now. Maybe that's the, the quaintness of cricket, but uh, the, that, that means an awful lot. World Cups are decided by that kind of margin. Cricket matches are routinely decided by uh, a small margin. And if a, if a batsman is receiving that kind of advantage, I think it's the, the responsibility of the game and those within it to change the way we think about it, to have a more grown-up conversation about why it's important that uh, the, the game flows in the way that it was, uh, you know, the way that it's meant to, and, and to sort of take the sting out of it so we don't every time this happens we don't end up in, in, in deep in the weeds about the ethics of it and talking about warnings which by the way the only reason we even have this convention about warning is because Mancad versus Bill Brown back in 1947 in the in the tour game where they played um, he did give him a warning before running him out of course he subsequently did it in a test match later in the series Bill Brown obviously had a bit of a Joss Butler issue walking down the strip uh, more often than not but all the same if, if it weren't for that there was nothing preventing Mancat from, from whipping the bales off without warning Brown, as it's been the case throughout the rest of cricketing history. For mine, uh, that should have been when this conversation shifted. And Don Bradman himself in 1949 um, was pretty black and white about this. If you don't want to get run out of non-strikers, then just, just stay in your ground. And, and, and why we can't reroute the conversation there rather than making it about every bowler who's ever considered whipping the bales off um, that's where I think there's a bit of a disconnect at the moment. And hopefully, even though last night was controversial and not clear-cut, we can start moving it in that direction uh, and, and rather than uh, turning it into a, a question of morality. Well, that's the part that always jumps out to me is that there's such an easy solution to this. And the solution is you keep your bat grounded or your foot behind the line until you see the ball leave the bowler's hand. It's as simple as that. I've seen a lot of people saying, oh, Joss Butler was just walking in with the bowler and so on. Great, you can walk in with the bowler because I can understand as a runner you want to have movement and momentum rather than be coming from a, a full stop when you want to sprint down to the other end. But you can walk in with the bowler from a, f a foot further back. You know, It's the same as when we see bowlers bowl front foot, no balls. Everyone's always saying, look, why don't they just start six inches further back? Why don't they just uh, practice this in the nets? How are you, a batsman w playing for professional teams, with all of this video analysis and you don't have someone say, I keep noticing that you're six inches outside your ground by the time the ball is bowled, you're going to get run out if you do that, sort it out. 
And the only thing that occurs to me is that either no one's looking for it because they don't think it matters or they know it's there and they don't care because they sort of feel entitled to have that little bit of a head start or they feel like they're protected by convention from being dismissed in that fashion. So I think part of... We saw Josh Butler really lose his cool and he's not normally that... Um, emotive as a player but he, he absolutely lost it when he was run out yesterday I couldn't help but feel some of that was to do with a kind of indignation that he sort of knew that he's a candidate for it it's happened to him before and he must have some feeling that it shouldn't happen it shouldn't be allowed to happen rather than that he needs to do something about it to make sure that it doesn't he took full responsibility back in 2014 Josh Butler that's that's another interesting point in all of this when he was run out uh, in that one day international uh, against Sri Lanka, he owned it. He pretty much said, yeah, I, I should stay back. And he didn't try and deflect, which, so yeah, I, I sort of was surprised at the way he responded. On the other hand, he would have saw, saw the replay on the screen and he would probably know the, uh, the, the way that law is written better than most or better than most professional cricketers anyway about... Well, it doesn't seem like he release. does. Well, what, that is to say, he would, have had this remi- he would have been reminded about this so many times uh, since, uh, since 2014. So he would know that, uh, when he's allowed to take off. So just to explain, uh, Jeff, I think it's worth going through the, the distinction here wh- where it did change. So before 2011, so I mentioned that Ashes example with Alistair Cook, they changed the professional code then. So the, 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 the code the ICC oversee for international cricket uh, was, was amended at that point. The laws of the game that govern you know, uh, what we play in the park on a Saturday or, or grade cricket or, or whatever it is um, only changed in... 2017, the little blue book, which I think they've released six or seven since World War II. Um, they, they make updates incrementally, but this was the first major update since 2000, the first new blue book, as it were. And they made the decision to, you know, to, to give this a pretty serious renovation. So in practical terms, the best way of understanding it is that um, until uh, 2017 in park and grade cricket and so on, once the back foot had landed, you were good to go. So if it were a spinner, that could give you a decent head start. So once the, the you know the spinner's back foot hit the turf, you think about bowlers who sort of stop and prop in their action before they twist and turn and so on. Um, so it's not really as much of an issue with fast bowlers, but spinners you could you know comfortably get that extra yard or two. They made it in that forty one point one six when they changed the law that it had to be when the bowler could realistically be expected to have let the ball go when you're allowed to take off. Now this is where Jeff last night inconclusive at best because Ashwin does by any measure, stop, uh, and, and Butler is, uh, you know, in his crease, albeit just, but not that that matters, He's, that, that's perfectly fine, at the point when he perhaps could have expected him to have let the ball go. I mean, that's an incredibly hard judgment to make. Um, you know, we're talking frames inside frames inside frames, but that's why, you know, we're subjected to such a debate. But the third umpire saw fit to give him out on that evidence, and you know, as Harsha Bogle made the point, uh, the custodian of the laws of the game in that moment is the third umpire, and it's not as though he's making it up on the fly. I mean, these are these are sort of well-credentialed officials of the game who who know the laws and and the playing conditions back to front. So I think it's debatable. Um, again, I sort of come back to my earlier point that I wish it had been clear cut because we're we're sort of focusing far too much on the Ashwin elements of this and really want to have a conversation about running out the non-striker, but. Um, yeah, that, that's how they came into, into sync so that now in all cricket, it's what it's been in professional ranks since 2011. So it's nothing new for professionals. Most of these guys have been playing under this, um, these professional conditions since they started their careers. So it's nothing particularly new in the last two years. The reason we, we point at 2017 is that the, you know, the custodians of the game are the MCC and they chose to update their, their laws in 2017 to sort of start trying to shift the conversation.
So on the specifics of this one, I had a bit of a road to Damascus moment midway through the day. Initially, I was coming at it from the point of view that a lot of people were, which is that if you watch that side on action, you have Ravi Ashwin coming into bowl. Uh, Joss Butler is is walking out of his ground. He's trailing his bat behind him. So he's still within his ground at the point that Ashwin stops. His back foot lands, Ashwin's back foot lands to bowl. And then he stops. As his front foot plants, he twists around and goes back to the stumps and knocks the bales off. By that point, Butler's out of his ground. So people are saying when Ashwin started to stop, Butler was still in his ground. I could see that. And they were saying that at the point that Ashwin would have released the ball, Butler would probably have still been in his ground. Now, he might have been. He might have been an inch in. He might have been an inch out. But it's probably too close to call. So my initial impulse... Yeah, my impulse was to say, well, you you say that's not out because you can't say for sure that it's out, but there's no problem with the appeal because the appeal's just asking the umpire to see if it's out or not. The umpire looks at it and says that it is out. Later in the day, after some more conversations with people, I someone else, so I, I can't remember who it was at, at the moment, proposed a few other ways of looking at it. And what it came down to was that wording that says when that, that says the batsman has to stay in their crease until the bowler is expected to release the ball. Now, you can look at that in terms of timing, in terms of saying with Ashwin's run-up, there was a time element that said that, you know, 0.4 seconds or whatever it was after his back foot landed, he would have released the ball and Butler would have still been in. But what was really interesting to me is that Ashwin never gets into his delivery motion. Not only does he not bring his bowling arm up to come over, he doesn't even bring his front arm up. He doesn't load up his front arm at all. There is no way looking at him that he is going to deliver a ball. Anyone who knows anything about cricket would know that he is not about to bowl a ball. The person who doesn't know that is Joss Butler because he's got his back to the bowler. He's not looking at Ashwin at all. He's looking down the pitch with his almost twisted away from the bowler with his back to him and is paying no attention to the bowler whatsoever. Butler's assuming that the ball is about to be delivered at a certain time, but he's not making sure for himself. And so I think you could very reasonably make the argument to say that a bowler is not expected to deliver a ball if he hasn't started his bowling action. He hasn't brought his arm over the top. And if Butler were watching him, as soon as Ashwin stopped, he would have known to jab his bat back in and make sure he was in his ground. As as it was, there was quite a span of time, a second or so, for Ashwin to turn around and take the bales off. So I really think it's on Butler. He's not watching. He's not paying attention. He's making an assumption. There's nothing in a time sense that says a bowler must deliver at the time that you expect they're going to. They can stop in their run-up. We see spinners do that quite a bit to try to disrupt the striker. They'll run up to the crease, stop, and then bowl off one step. Or they can bowl earlier, they can bowl from behind the crease from a metre back. We saw Bhuvneshwar Kumar doing that during the recent one-day series against Australia. They can try all sorts of things to disrupt the batsman. So in in that sense, that, that, that would be my interpretation of what's written down in terms of the laws. Yeah. I, I, look, I, I think there's going to be a tweak to the laws next time around. I haven't spoke to Fraser today. I'm going to give him a call later today. I probably should have called him before the podcast. But my expectation is they will make a change um, to make it, to include reference to the bowler's swing. So this is the other element. <laughs> We're getting in the weeds here, but we kind of have to. The The intent of the new law was that you could take the bales at any point until the swing had passed the parallel. So the bowler's arm had essentially passed the earlobe. Right. Of course, Ashwin's arm never got to that point yesterday. So it is, I agree, it's really bad cricket from Josh Butler not watching. Bad running is bad cricket, cliche, but, you know, true as it is uh, when, when in, in the park as it is in, in the IPL as it is in international cricket. So I think Butler's absolutely, I agree with your contention that it's poor cricket and, he, and he's left himself open. But, but I do wonder whether they'll, they'll need to be 
just, you know, seeing this in practice, and we do have fake fielding as part of the laws now as well. The way it's administered, fake fielding is now part of the professional game. Yeah, right? so which, which is a, a mystery think, really like, because it's not like it was ever an issue. It's a, it's a law that sure, I don't understand but, but, but why it was still, ever included. Yeah, but, but, I, but I kind of do it in a way. Like I, 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 look, the, the point I'm making is, is that now we have crossed the precipice on fake fielding. I think that this might provide pause to consider whether fake bowling, and again, I don't even know if that's even a thing, but you know what Ashwin essentially did yesterday. Now, the other way of looking at it is to take Ashwin's um, you know, position would be that and, and a lot of assumptions at play here, but you, you see some highlights from Butler last night um, that, that people screen grabbed on Twitter. He was out of his ground when Ashwin was bowling routinely. Yeah, not by you know, not like, by much, but there were there were stills where he was out by six inches here or one inch there. Yeah, not not by much. We're, we're talking, we're, you know, we're we're talking tiny little margins. But in the same way that Kimo Paul, um, the West Indian fast bowler in the Under 19s World Cup, executed the run out of the non-striker against Zimbabwe in, in an elimination game by you know millimeters, and it was perfectly legal. Um, in the same way, Ashwin could have you know done that earlier in his spell. So, uh, look, I, I saw Ashwin's press conference, but you know. He would have, in the back of his mind, perhaps known that Butler was so prone to this that he thought, well, you know, I'm just going to hold back a wee bit here and flick the bales and it'll be out. I'm, again, I, that's where I think they might um, they, they might see room for a slight improvement when they do their amendment. I think they do an amendment to the book every two years. So that'll be this year. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious to see how the MCC approach that. They'll put out a paper today. They, they always put out a paper after controversial um moments on the field so I'm sure we'll see something from the MCC in the next couple of days to get their perspective on this but um, but you know if it's it's worth noting that the MCC um, whenever this has come up in the past have fallen on the side of, of the bowler um, so they certainly did with the chemo Paul incident I mean I mentioned before about the the, the 1987 uh, World Cup quarterfinal that was where Courtney Walsh was Bowling in the final over, and uh, and they they you know he, he um, elected to let the number eleven Salim Jafar scamper down the wicket. Um, had he took the bales, the West Indies would have won and progressed to the semi final. Instead, instead he sort of stood there and, and they lost the game. Now again, like th- that was a clear example of, of the batsman like sprinting down the other end. It was quite, you watch the YouTube. Rob Alinda, the great man, has put it up um, in the past. It's a it's a very clear example of where the batsman was trying to steal some advantage and and so on. But yeah, so I I, I see where you're coming from, Jeff. In that Butler, I think it's probably the case where Butler bad cricket from him. Ashwin, yes, being too smart by half and taking full advantage. A very intelligent man, um, uh, Ashwin as well. You know, hyper educated and uh, you know knows the game inside out. An absolute obsessive. I can recommend a, an interview that he did, uh, a conversation that he had on Test Match Special last year, which involved a few different interrogators, including I think Vic Marks, Graham Swan, talking about the, uh, the the craft of off spin. This guy thinks about everything, and you can tell by the way he communicates to the media as well. So, if you want to get a bit of a sense as to the way that Ashwin's brain works, go back and pull up that link. But um, yeah, so, you know, a few people at fault in different ways, but hopefully it does help to start, you know, developing the conversation and moving it forward a little bit. What I think you need to look at, if you want to clarify this, is to take an almost legalistic sense, what is the point, what is the intent of a law? And the wording that we've seen from the MCC where it says, where it talks about the point at which the bowler is expected to deliver the ball, 
what they're trying to do is avoid a situation where, where bowlers bowl fake deliveries, come up, get into the delivery stride, don't actually let go of the ball at all, and then sort of underhand it back at the stumps or something like that. So it's, you know, a, a whole fake delivery ensues because then you sort of get into a, a question about whether it should be a no ball because it hasn't reached the other end and, and all that kind of thing. So that's what they're out to avoid when they say, uh, when they use the word expect. It doesn't necessarily refer to a kind of time frame case like this one where you could say, well, I thought Ashwin would have bowled by then. It's more, has have, have you got to the point in his action where you think the ball's about to leave his hand? In this case, no, because you never got into his actions. So if, if that's the intent, if their intent is to stop that, it might be easier just to simplify the rules. Basically, the, the way the laws stand at the moment, any time from the start of the bowler's run-up, through until the point that they get into their delivery swing into, into their arm swinging over to the to the top they're allowed to run out the non-striker they could do it while they're behind the umpire they could underarm the ball onto the stumps if they wanted to and that would still be legal so if they want to if, if the mcc want to make it clearer it really needs to be about the point that the ball is predicted to leave the hand in the actual movement of, of bowling. And so, as you say, if they make that more explicit, then that tidies up the whole thing. The other option is just to say that, you know, whatever anything goes, um, as basically it's the non-striker's job to know where the ball is and, and if the bowler wants to use it at one end rather than the other, they're allowed to. But if, if they want to try to stop a proliferation of these kind of attempts, then... Um, being specific about the ball leaving the hand is probably the way to go. Some um, commentary on Twitter last night. Uh, the best thing that could happen for uh, this part of the game would be a proliferation of, of attempts of running out the non-striker. It, it'll change the thinking and the comparison. I think Andrew Nixon on Twitter was the person that made this point. It's like when the back pass, or it might have been Dave Tickner actually, I think it was Dave Tickner, when the back pass was um, outlawed in, in association football, it, it did create a period of sort of crazy transition as people were getting used to the getting used to that in the 90s and, and, and now it's an, a non-event. If, if all it will take is uh, a team um, going out and, and doing it a lot and then the whole – the game will evolve, the game will move on, it always does. I mean, we've, we've evolved to um, far bigger things in cricket over the last 20 years than, than staying in your crease until the ball takes off. In fact, I'd like to see almost a situation – and I'm sort of – saying this partially in jest, but, you know, getting down in the crouch like you would for the 100 metres and just looking over your left shoulder under your armpit and ready to go as soon as the ball goes, then take off and pounce out of the blocks. That might be the, the most efficient way to get down the other end rather than um, being at a standing start. But, you know, mm. to see the point I'm trying to make, it might create little um, little developments in the way that we, we see running between the wickets. Um, and another point here is that T20 cricket or T20 international status has been now given to every nation that plays international. So we saw the United States uh, play their first T20 international a couple of weeks ago, which is really cool. Uh, if you're an American and you've, brought, you've been brought up with baseball and all of the different quirks that, that come with it, you know, a lot of similarities between baseball and cricket uh, across the board. But for instance, stealing bases is, the, is the, probably the one that, that, that stands out as a comparison point here and, and the ability to, to, um, to uh, you know, dismiss or to out a, a, a batsman who, or a batter, sorry, in baseball, isn't it, who, are, who is trying to steal a base. Um, it wouldn't surprise me, and this has been another point the MCC have made before, if associate nations who don't come from a traditional cricketing part of the world try and adopt this as a, as a strategic part of their gameplay. So America, for example, I'd love to see a situation where they... Um, decided to, to, to run people out at non-strike. Indeed, the only one in T20 international cricket ever to happen was between Oman and Hong Kong. I mean, there's only been four successful attempts in tests since, since, uh, since the MANCAD um, the initial one in 1947. There's been none for 40 years. There's just been five in one-day international cricket. 
So it doesn't happen very often, but what if it was to be in T20 cricket that these new nations who are playing internationals for the first time decided to let it rip and, you know, that, 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 could, be a, that could be an early <laughs> legacy item they could leave on the game. Bring it on, I say. I had someone say to me today, oh, what if, you know, do you want to see a game where there are 10 man cats? I was like, bring it on. Yes. <laughs> if we... Well, the World Cup. I mean, the World Cup's coming up and it's a tournament where any advantage, um, I'm sure, any advantage will be taken. And uh, look, I, I, I've seen... You know, we've all seen the, the response from, from players and it's been a fraction partisan, but probably beyond that too, the parochial interest. I think people who haven't really thought too much about this. And, and this is another point, by the way. I reckon, Jeff, early on in our friendship, going back to probably 2013 or something like that, before I'd ever really thought about it, um, we had a, I had a different view. Um, that is to say, I'd never considered it too closely and I reckon I would have said to you something like, yeah, it's right to do it, but yeah, we've, we've got to be mindful of the spirit of cricket and you should be warned. I would have, I would have rattled off mm. all the things that I'm criticising right now until I thought about it a little bit. So, you know, with education um, yeah, and with the, you know, the additional knowledge, hopefully we'll become a more mature way of approaching the issue. And, and I don't think that's beyond the sport, by the way. I think it's just a matter of um, using this as an opportunity. Well, that's why some of it was really disappointing. Some of the big accounts, um, a lot of the English players, um, people like Shane Warne and so on as well, getting stuck into Ashwin directly, you know, and, and sort of calling him a disgrace and questioning his integrity and all this kind of stuff. I just feel like it's on the umpire to make that decision. The umpire did. The player appealed. It could have been given not out and it wasn't, but it's not the fault of the bowler. And it, Some of the aggressive tone of that kind of stuff was really unnecessary you know you can disagree with it without needing to make out that uh, the person on the other side of, of the debate is a monster for saying something differently to you yeah look and and um, Ashwin's a big boy he's a tough he's a tough cricketer um, I don't think he'll care too much but gee having Shane Warne pile on on Twitter um, the way that he did yesterday with him and the and the and the, the way that he framed his criticism of Ashwin, disgrace and so forth, those kind of words, um, that's brutal. I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be a long few days in his Twitter mentions. It's going to be... Uh, yes, it's sticking a few million people yeah, on you. And you. There's another thing... Sorry, I was just going to say, when speaking of Twitter mentions, um, uh, I, saw, I saw that uh, the other Steve Smith, who featured, of course, on the final word live at uh, the Commercial Hotel, a couple of... The Commercial Club Hotel, rather, back in January, he... Um, he drew, he, he drew a friendship today with, with Josh Butler, uh, a reporter in Australia who was copying an absolute hammering on, on Twitter as well. Uh, his mentions were, were a sewer, as you can expect. Uh, Got to love credit. Uh, well, you can bond over these experiences. There was, there was one other little um, thing that I'd observed, though, in terms of a non-striking batsman not really being aware of what's going on. I do wonder what effect the DRS has because you think previously if you want to keep an eye on the bowler and also keep an eye on, on your colleague and on the field, you'd stand wider on the crease as you're backing up and, and be able to have the bowler in your peripheral vision and also be ready to take off for a run. These days, batsmen have to stand really close to the bowler because they have to be called on to adjudicate for their partner's DRS reviews. If they're struck in line, they, they have to be able to give advice on LBWs and, uh, and the like. And so I wonder if that makes it a lot harder to keep an eye on the bowler because you have to sort of have your head twisted 90 degrees to watch the bowler rather than be mostly looking down the pitch, which is where you want most of your attention to be. Yeah, hadn't thought of it that way. It, it, yeah, it's again. This is the modern game, isn't it? There's a lot of different elements to it that perhaps weren't so, such the weren't weren't so much the case in years gone by. But before we kind of wrap up this conversation, yeah, Jeff, one last point about the warning. So the warning is used as this idea that what would prevent 
me saying to you, Jeff, when you walk out to the middle, okay, Jeff, I'm just going to tell you right now, officially, you are officially warned. Do not leave your crease or I will run you out. <laughs> First ball of the game. I mean, you know, it, it, yes, it would be a bit daft, but that's the way around it. So, yeah, I, I, I'm very sympathetic. Maybe just, just put a plaque on the wall outside the dressing yes, rooms. You are forever you know? warned. Do not leave your crease, Josh Butler, ever. I mean, you know, again, I, your first point is that, um, you know, there, there is there was a lot of ugliness yesterday when this bobbed up. People take very hard positions on this. But, yeah, I have a lot of respect for people who want to see the game played in a more... Um, in a kinder, gentler way, um, you know. Um, oftentimes, I'm I'm advancing that argument, but um, uh, but yeah, I think this is one where uh, you know uh, where where that might be just just a fraction misguided when when you think about the broader implications of um, the margins in which cricket games can be won by. And it did strike me as pretty amusing when people were saying Joss Butler should have been warned, and I was thinking Joss Butler got warned in a one-day match against Sri Lanka. Then he got run out in a one-day match against Sri Lanka where the appeal was withdrawn. Then he got warned in another match. Then he got run out in another match. He's How many warnings yeah. does he need in order to be cognizant of this? Yeah, it would just seem that, that some batsmen have it in their, in their setup at the non-striker's end just to leave the crease. And, and it's, it's important to note that I doubt Josh Butler is doing it to seek advantage, by the way. This is the other point to all of this is that, um, is that uh, you know, in some instances, like I mentioned the 87 World Cup quarterfinal, that it is clearly a case of trying to, you know, steal metres. Uh, most of the time, it's because it's just the way they've always done it. And that's just a, a, a case of conditioning and training and preparing and being more mindful of, of ways in which you can be dismissed. Again, I don't think it's a, an enormous shift. I don't think they're getting much further down the pitch because usually they're, they're walking, not running, if you know what I mean. Like usually it is just kind of the, the natural momentum of walking in with the bowler takes them over the line. But if it means that you start from that standing position until the ball has been let go, I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it, it doesn't feel like a massive adjustment. That is the running out the non-striker chat on the final word. If you have a pin, it's, I, it's, I hesitate to say this, but if you have opinions on it, send us an email, finalwordcricket oh, at gmail.com. I'm, I'm sure we'll yeah. get a few I'm coming. I'm sure we're going to get smashed for that, and that's fine. That, yeah, that, that's, our, that's, our, that's our Bob Muller report right there. That's our, that's our big uh, sort of statement on the way of the world. We'll release the findings publicly, unlike that. Uh, we also have to send out a cheerio to a bunch of people who've signed up on the Patreon page since the last podcast. They keep coming in. We set ourselves a little goal uh, about a month ago when we started to get to 100. We're at 79. We wanted 100 by the end of the year and we're at 79 by it's not even April. So uh, thanks a million to everyone who's jumping on board there. Caitlin Hanrahan is one of those. That is such a good Irish name. It's um, it's, it's the name of that. It's in that, uh, that John O'Brien, that Bush poem, isn't it? We'll all be ruined said Hanrahan, before the year is out. It's all about uh, Australian... That's your space, <laughs> but I like it. Well, I, I posed it as a question, but I know that it's true. Um, <laughs> Adam Morton has jumped on board. Thank you, Adam. Patrick That's Hargraves, okay. another very good Irish name. Patrick Dupe or Dupe. I don't know if there's uh, a bit of an accent on the E there. Robert Amore or Amore. I don't know if there's an accent there either. That's uh, Swedish Amore, very busy on Twitter. Over many years, yeah. He's, uh, he's been a great supporter of ours over many years. Thanks, Robert. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's Swedish Amore. <laughs> Uh, oh, well, and another the, the guy who keeps Twitter.com afloat, basically, Jeremy Henderson, Messy Jez. Uh, shout out to oh. you as well. Sam Norrish has jumped on board. Jono Leslie, Matt Goodison, Jessica Curry, also busy on the internet. So Shannon Gill, our good friend from Kookaburra, is supporting the podcast officially Gilly. as well as unofficially. Um, 
they, they keep coming in. Now, this one particularly, so we don't have any control over the names people use when they sign up. So we have a, a supporter who's registered themselves as disinterested hand job. Um, well, <laughs> we, um, which which is, is that a, it's an interesting coupling. Um, um, yeah, be, because That's, because I, one of my little um, particular bugbears is that people haven't really clocked the difference between uninterested and disinterested, which is very relevant to cricket because the example is always that an umpire should be disinterested but never uninterested. Yes. So what we've actually got here, what this actually means, is an impartial hand job. A, uh, a fair and balanced hand job, if you a will. Fair, fair and balanced, yes. Sat on the hand beforehand, possibly. <laughs> L'étranger. Oh, um, Patrick Noon has jumped on board with a very... He's, he's in the high rollers room with a, a generous Thanks, contribution. So thank you very much, and Pat. And also makes generous contributions to our writing. Thank you so much, Pat, for all your help. And, uh, and uh, Pat, of course, works with the CrickViz um, data analysis folks who we did a podcast with a few weeks ago if you want to go back and have a listen to the way that they're reshaping the way cricket analysis works and now a couple we mentioned last week that there were some people getting into a bit of numerology with their um, their, their supporting so what you can do is chuck us a, a couple of bucks per episode if you want to do that kind of thing and people have been getting creative with their numbers we've had a 222 we've had a 434 for uh, Australia's game in South Africa Matthew Fidge has come through with a $2.79, a uh, Brian Lara in Sydney, if I'm not mistaken. Very good. Very, very good. And uh, and after my own heart here, Pradeep has come through with the one that I wanted all along, 281, VVS Laxman, Kolkata, 2001. So the 279 and the 281, two of the great innings have come through. On, in the I, last don't think, I don't think 279 was Brian Lara, you know. Wasn't it? I, I, I feel like... What was that, 273? I feel like maybe it wasn't. I think it was 272, but it makes me think, who made 279? Maybe it's the highest score yet to be made. Oh, is it like the Rick Finlay score, the one where he's... Um, there are a couple of scores in that range that haven't been made yet. I think there's a two, there's one in the 220s or 30s as well, isn't there? Jeff, I can conclude that 279 has never been made in a test match. Javed Miandad made 280 not out in 1983 against India at Hyderabad. And A.B. de Villiers made 278 not out against Pakistan in Abu Dhabi in 2010. So two unbeaten massive scores of 280 and 279. Dennis Compton also made 278, I should add, uh, back in 1954. But no one's made 279. So maybe that is the reason why Matthew has chose that figure. Please tell us why. That's got to be it. Um, because that's got to be that's it. Gonna, if, if, it could well be it. It'll haunt us until we know. So It's ice, you know, ice cold work line. from the, the figurator. Um, <laughs> so, wait, so what was, was Lara 273? Lara was, I reckon, 272. I'm going to check that, though, while we're, while we're going down this ridiculous wormhole. At 277, sorry, 277. So you're close back in. 277, that's why I went 279. I am deeply ashamed. My, my shame knows no bounds. I am going to have to ceremonially stab myself with a katana and uh, be beheaded. <laughs> that's, so this is actually the last episode of The Final Word. I thank you all <laughs> to, for listening in over all these years. It's been wonderful to have your support since 2015 and hopefully Adam can move on without me and, and find find love elsewhere. I like we've got 281 with Laxman in there as well. Sangakara made 287. Indeed, Kumar Sangakara was big on the ManCAD stuff overnight. He um, engaged with one of my tweets about it to um, reiterate what the MCC had said at the time. So, And then and there's a... And there's, as you say, the highest score above 300 is Brendan McCullum with 302. Uh, there's been three or four guys who've made 302 in innings, including Azza Ali in, in, in innings in the first 
day-night test that was played in the UAE a couple of years ago. And I think this wormhole has to just about shut because we're, we're really in the weeds now, Jeff. Well, I'm glad that I at least got the McCullum one right, so my life may be spared on appeal. We'll send that one up to the third umpire and see <laughs> if he can decide when the delivery was about to be released from the hand in a theoretical timeline in which it actually took place. Uh, if you want to get involved in all this patron nonsense, you can go to patron, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N for some reason, patron.com slash the final word and you can chuck us a couple of bucks per episode if you want to sign up and subscribe and get us up to 100 and when we get to 100 i'm going to re-record a proper version of my ode to sean marsh and release it for patron subscribers only so if you want to be part of this uh, this beautiful moment in cricket and literature crossover uh, get involved patreon.com slash the final word and there must be something we can do jeff when it comes to the live shows later in the year for our patron subscribers as well so if you're in the uk um, we'll be doing um live shows throughout the ashes um with a with a relatively high profile uh a special guest joining the show um, i'm just gonna be a bit of a teaser there i'm not gonna say who it is but um through that period we'll be we'll be bobbing up around the uk so if you are in england and and you want to come along to one of those shows indeed if you're an australian who's going over to make the pilgrimage for the ashes series and and so forth then you will get i'm sure some sort of discount on your ticket let's put it that way so jump on there patreon.com forward slash the final word? Final, I should really the final it. word, Patreon. that's the one. Uh, com forward slash the final word. We've got a lot of stuff to roll through in part two. We'll be back with you right after this. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. This is indeed The Final Word, and welcome to part two, where we've got a long list of things to go through in relatively short detail, but it's very important to note off the top that The Final Word is brought to you once again by Kookaburra Cricket. If it ain't cooker, it ain't cricket, and the the summer is still going. The Australian summer is still uh, dragging through its final death throes, which means I think you can still go to kookaburra.biz, B-I-Z, and sign up and register and uh, maybe be able to win some free kit. Marcus Harris is about to play in the Sheffield Shield final with the uh, the ghost bat that he wheel- has wielded for a 1,000-plus mm. runs in this Shield season. We've had uh, Peter Hanscom doing very well uh, in uh, the subcontinent and now in the UAE using the surge. Uh, Glenn Maxwell, the Blaze, so well represented. Uh, Usman Khawaja, of course, the Kahuna, the big Kahuna, yeah, big Kahuna burger. And Tim Payne, the Test captain, also uses that. And that's on the men's side. Well, um, yeah, Usman Khawaja's been the revelation, really, hasn't he? he? Just just keeps piling up those runs. Finch and Khawaja have two of the seven or eight largest ever opening partnerships by Australians in one day cricket. Um, in the last couple of weeks, they've done it twice. Yeah, we went into this last week on the show. We might as well use this moment to do it again. Um, Gee, they've 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 made it very hard for the selectors at the perfect time. I, you know, I know I observed last week that I can't believe we're having a conversation about there being a squeeze for spots in the Australian limited oversight ahead of the World Cup, given the dreadful form they've had for the last I don't know four years. But um, that seems to have been laid at the perfect time. I mean, Kawaja has to play, Finch has to play, Warner has to play. You know, these these are the sorts of decisions that'll have to be made in the next couple of weeks. I heard it put that Ashton Turner might miss out on the squad. I guess what they have going in their favour, Jeff, is that they can pick a squad of 15 uh, and even if they elected to not pick Sean Marsh in the squad, for instance, he will still be over in the UK playing county cricket. I mean, I don't think they'd go down that path, but that is probably an option they have at their disposal if they want to fit 16 or 17 into the sort of broader uh, make-up across the seven weeks. 
I think it's 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 maybe the first time I could say this in his career, but it's one of the, it's a time when you absolutely couldn't leave Sean Marsh out. He's just <laughs> scoring too many runs. But you know, it's interesting that that Kawhi just created the problem for him, and I chalk it all up to the Kookaburra bat. That's uh, that fine piece of willow by by uh, young Mr. Dinger, the bat maker down there at Kookaburra's uh, factory yeah. out in. Southeastern Melbourne, where we've been out there and seen the magic happen, gone behind the Wizard of Oz curtain. It's a, it's, it's an enchanted castle down there at Kookaburra HQ. He plays for Doveton North Cricket Club, which is a club that I played against growing up around the corner. So, in the DDCA, great competition. Hopefully, um, he ended the season well. He certainly makes a fantastic blade, Mr. Dinger. Um, as he does for yeah, Kawaja, Alisa Healy, Tim Payne, Marcus Harris, Nathan Lyon, Nicole Bolton, Peter Hanscom. Mitchell Stark, Sophie Molyneux, Glenn Maxwell, Rachel Haynes, Josh Hazelwood. Uh, it, it's quite the uh, it's quite the galaxy galaxy of stars, Jeffrey. It's weird that you can do that off the top of your head. Now that's uh, <laughs> it's quite incredible, actually. <laughs> too funny that we, we probably we probably should say the cooker cooker.biz if if you want to uh, get involved in in the uh, in the team and be able to win prizes. I know that when we were uh, when we were doing wisdom dot com uh, test match cricket in the UAE we talked about prizes that were available to be won by Proatar at the time who we were working with uh, the cricket coaching app and, and I saw a bunch of Twitter feedback through November and December of people who'd won a stack of prizes from them so um, it, it's not just for show if you go on and, and register you'll get yourself a good bit of kit I'm sure and thanks to Shannon Gill and Kookaburra for looking after us as they have done for many years. We have a lot of stuff to get through, Adam, on the show today. In the last, well, probably 20 minutes, we've got to allocate about 90 seconds per topic. Um, but having spent 40 minutes on the man cat slash running out the non-striker, depending, uh, and we didn't even cover whether we should be be calling it this. Our, our good friends at uh, the Fire Up show on FBI Radio were saying, why would you be uh, ashamed to have your name associated with the greatest form of dismissal in Test cricket? Which, you know, in a way I'd love to agree. This is, a good, this is, this is an interesting point. Yeah, Dave Tickner, uh, I mentioned him before in the show, but just, we, we, you know, again, to go behind the curtain, we, we've, we've, uh, we've recorded this in two slabs today. So I've been away from the computer for a few hours and, um, and, and got to read a few extra tweets. And he made the point that it should be mancad with a small m when talking about the dismissal. So it does recognise the origin story without besmirching the man by using the capital M. It's almost a compromise I could come at, although mm. I think that on the whole it still has those negative uh, pejorative connotations. I also saw a suggestion for the Nero, as in NRO, the um, non-striker runout, as he's, yeah, he's, he's been okay. Neroed. Uh, but also the suggestion yeah. from plenty of people going around is that it really should be named after Bill Brown. Yes. So he's been browned. The <laughs> non-striker was browned out. <laughs> I can come to terms with that. We, we probably should move off the topic. I know it's compelling. I'm, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's compelling know, for it the is subscribers compelling. who are listening in as well. Uh, but but well, Stephen Stephen Smith and David Warner are playing cricket again. Not that they weren't playing T20 cricket for like every day of their ban, but hmm. um, they they are formally allowed to play for Australia <laughs> again. They did um, some interviews, Jeff. Well, not quite. It's the tw- it's the 28th when they're due, isn't it? It's, uh, uh, sorry, you're right. The 29th. We've got a couple yeah, of days. So a couple of days away from their ban concluding. It's been 12 months since the infamous day at Newlands, which is probably the the milestone that we we remember most. And they were back with the Australian side in a, I don't know, a, a socialising capacity last week before they started. A cuddling capacity. Yeah, David Warner said they were cuddling. They did, some, uh, they did some interviews in the looser sense of the term. The Cricket Australia uh, media officer asked them a couple of questions, um, which got them some 
nice content uh, at, on the um, Cricket Australia website and so on. Uh, so they're yet to be interrogated, that is to say by you know, journalists and ask questions from the main pack, although they have fronted up to media conferences in the, as I mentioned before, the various leagues they're playing in and, and Steve Smith uh, did in Sydney just before Christmas when promoting his, uh, his relationship with the telecommunications company. We won't go back down that. Uh, as previously discussed on the final word. Yeah, as previously discussed on the final word. But, you know, in, in terms of what they did when they were over there, they, they, they seemed to catch up. Uh, they seemed to, you know, well, look, let's be honest. They said everything you'd expect them to say and none of it was overly interesting. They said everything you'd expect them to say in one minute and 20 seconds in an interview yeah. with the team media manager. Well, yeah, yeah. So anything you would expect Steve Smith to say about getting around the boys, um, he pretty much said, and David Warner about, you know, feeling welcome and so forth, that, 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 was, that was the guts of it. So, but they are back and they are in the IPL. Probably more interesting from a um, sandpaper trio perspective, Jeff, in the last seven days has been Cam Bancroft's elevation to the captaincy of Durham County Cricket Club. Um, Gee, he's not played a game from them, for them rather. He's not played for the club. He's uh, he's coming off. He's, he's arriving rather after missing the first game due to a Cricket West Australia awards ceremony, which Durham are filthy about and have been publicly. Uh, he's been appointed captain, uh, as it's been reported on the basis of his strong relationship with Marcus North, that West Australian um, connection there, uh, which obviously runs through the the coaching staff as well with Justin Langer at a, at a national level. So uh, Bancroft's not only back, but he's uh, he's back in charge of a, a group of players who he, who he hasn't previously had a relationship with. So um, yeah, a suitable amount of scrutiny on that decision. I feel for him a bit. I mean, I'm sure he would have wanted the job. He's that kind of character, but. Uh, yeah, they'll, it'll, it'll just increase the degree of difficulty, that, that extra notch or two. Well, it's a tricky one, and particularly at Durham, where they've had uh, such a, a difficult history the last few years. Yeah. Um, the, the massive penalties that were they were smashed by the ECB. Disgraceful um, penalties. And, <laughs> and I suppose also in terms of the kind of the calibre of player, they like to think of themselves as a, a very proud sort of County and Paul Collingwood's probably the, you know, the leading example of that as, as someone who, who everybody thought played his game the right way and so on. It, it's it's an interesting shift for them to have to embrace someone who needs forgiveness rather than someone who automatically commands respect. Yeah, well, well, that's right. I mean, uh, they they are without a captain on the basis that Paul Collingwood um, did retire. Uh, at the end of last season, at age I don't know forty nine or something like that, um, Vic Marks <laughs> Wilfred uh, Rhodes basically. Today. Yeah, that's right. Vic Marks made the point that um, that, uh, that that uh, that there were a couple of um, Durham players asked to captain the side, younger players, but both of them declined the offer. Uh, that is, uh, they wanted to focus more on their games than than on than on the leadership. So there there are a range of you know mitigating circumstances which we've learned after the fact. But yeah, it did raise the eyebrows when that decision was made. Wish him the best of luck, of course, and he certainly hit the ground running in the Sheffield Shield over a, a short burst uh, after his band concluded and you know he's amongst a group of players now who are who are slugging it out for the Ashes spots that are available at the top of the order. Marcus Harris, you mentioned before, Jeff, uh, surpassed a 1,000 runs, as did Matthew Wade, although they would be fighting for slightly different spots. Joe Burns is the incumbent and made 180 at the most recent time of asking in Canberra. 
Um, David Warner, of course, needs to come back into the side. You'd expect. I can't see a scenario where he won't. So there is a little bit of a, a logjam there. Presumably, Burns and Harris will open on the Australia A tour um, while Bancroft's playing county cricket for Durham, which is to his you know distinct advantage. I should add that he's playing in England through that World Cup period, and and then there's Warner playing in, in the World Cup squad. So. Um, there's it, it, a fair bit to a fair bit to go before we have any real steer on who who'll front up at Edgebaston. Yeah, we we won't know now from this, but when you look at the wash up at the end of the Shield season, I, I think particularly telling is Burns didn't make a hundred this season, played almost every game, mm. made six fifties, was sort of thereabouts. Um, Harris had he did have that thousand round season. 200s in that there were there were also 200s he should have had that he threw away a couple of times where he you know got into the 90s and then tried to play a massive shot against the spinner or something and it it was a giveaway that it was a sort of an ego shot rather than trying to do the team thing at that moment and that was you know that, that was something that that stuck in the craw a little bit where it just felt like he'd showed in his test stint that he has a bit of an issue with temperament not necessarily making the right choice at the right time so that's that's something that doesn't fully inspire faith in English conditions where maybe if you make 95, you don't win your team a test match, whereas if you make 160, you do. Matthew Renshaw basically on his shield season has batted himself out of the running, couldn't make 400 runs in the season, averaged about 20 for the season. So he's had a wretched trot. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's the opportunity he had across those last 12 months uh, that he hasn't... I mean. I think that it was unfortunate that he wasn't picked in Dubai, um, which meant that, I mean, there's a lot of reporting from Ben Horn and Peter Lawler at the time as to why that may have been. Uh, but now he's well off the radar. You'd think even though he's off to Kent, he'll play the first three rounds of the county championship there. They've gone up to Division 1. He'll get an opportunity to play on, you know, good, hard decks early in the year. It won't be a Division 2 um, sort of green top action that we've seen in, in the last few seasons. His first game's at Somerset where he played last year. He made 300s down in Taunton, so that's to his advantage as well. So he has probably a three-game window where if he blew the doors down, he could get back into consideration ahead of the Australia A um, tour. But, I mean, yeah, it, it, even though it might, strictly speaking, be a case in five, I think Renshaw's probably a clear fifth in that race right now, which is weird because had we been having this discussion, you know, 10 months ago, you would have thought the first name on the, on the team sheet uh, for an Ashes test in England would be the bloke who's making runs at top-flight county cricket and who, you know, played 11 tests before he was 21 or, or whatever the stat is, so... So Renshaw's in, in, in that in that frame too. Just on um, on back to Smith and Warner briefly, Jeff. I can't believe it's four months ago. I mean, I was just I did an interview on uh, SEN before we chatted earlier, and it, it kind of I, I still can't quite fathom that it was a full year ago. And, and not that just mean because of the amount of time, but how much has happened? Have you had a chance to sort of pause and take a breath, considering how much of your life personally has been dominated by this, given the the book you wrote about it, <laughs> principally about this topic? Have you? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure you would have been fielding plenty of interview requests in the last few days yourself. Have you had much of a chance to reflect on, on the year that was? Um, yeah, well, I've, I've certainly chatted about it a fair bit, but it does feel like a year ago for me, I guess, because I spent a good chunk of it writing the book and then talking about it and promoting it. It, it feels like a long, long time ago, although we're finally getting around to having a launch. I, I didn't actually manage to have a launch before cricket season when the book came out because it was cricket season and you know what it's like. So I'm having a sort of po a posthumous <laughs> launch. <laughs> well, we remember we originally the live show was going to be a book launch and then it slipped yeah. and slipped and slipped and oh, then, it it was, was, then it was the back of January. It was too much. It was it was too much work it was too hard so now that I'm finally home without much to do except watch the odd game in the middle of the night um, 
Yeah, well, actually, I don't know if the podcast will get out before the launch has happened, but uh, so whatever date it comes out, Thursday the 28th, Commercial Club Hotel it should get in out. Fitzroy. If, you, have some faith, Jeff. If, if today is the 26th, I reckon we'll turn this around by tomorrow. So if you hear this at the last minute, get along to Jeff's book launch. I'm sure if it's uh, if it's as well put, uh, put it this way, if it's at the Commercial Club, it'll be a great night. Because, yeah, uh, I do say it will. a tremendous job over there. Um, I, I heard Mark Taylor was on TV, uh, Jeff, saying that mm. um, there's still a lot of grey area about what went down in Newlands. And, and that's a reminder of the 12-month thing as well, isn't it? Uh, you know, the, the thing that sticks out to me a year later is that, A, we truly don't know what happened. I mean, that, nope. that's the guts of it. And, and the, the lie that was constructed in the, in the dressing room in that sort of long period before we saw Bancroft and Smith show their faces with the, the sticky tape um, lie, the bat tape uh, down the strides uh, fib, bigger than a fib it was a shocker um that we never really you know that's just emblematic of the fact that there's still so much of the story yet to be told uh and and who knew i mean it wasn't just three guys in that dressing room that day i don't mean who knew about the ball tampering initially but who knew about the cover-up and you know yeah mark taylor who's now no longer a director can speak with a fraction more freedom i suppose um giving a giving a bit of an insight as to the fact that, you know, this will continue to bubble away maybe until the end of their careers when they write books themselves. Yeah, it's it's the big um, stick in the spokes for this sort of redemption narrative that is inevitably being, you know, it's already in the process of being constructed. And, of course, that'll culminate if, if any of those three players manage to perform well in England. You know, you can imagine how it's going to go. If Smith makes a, an Ashes 100 somewhere, it'll be all the front pages, you know, all is forgiven. Um, yeah. But but the thing that, that still bugs me is that there's been no, not only no transparency, but really no willingness to be transparent. We've sort of had lines from Smith along the lines of, oh, we, we all know, we've all talked a lot about what happened and, but they haven't, you know, we, we haven't, as you say, we haven't got the um, information about why a decision was made to cover it up, who was involved with that decision, who knew about it, because, you know, it seems uh, a bit of a stretch to think that the three players got together themselves, concocted a, a cover-up plan story and, and that nobody else knew what was going on. Yeah, and this isn't gratuitous, by the way. It's not like we want to know because we're desperate to hear the yarn and, and all the rest of it. Although there is an element of that. It, it, it's, I think, from a helping them get through it it would have been sensible to at some stage in the last 12 months told the full story and you know we, we've said this before on the final word fundamentally cricket australia is taxpayer funded like fundamentally you know when, when you boil it all back their salaries their contracts are subsidized by the taxpayer um and i, I do believe there is a degree uh of, of transparency which, which should come with that and yeah sure the culture review was it was a good exercise in in uh in, in shining a light on the systemic problems and uh, the the review that Rick McCosker was involved in as well, but uh, yeah, I think they could have they would have done well to have found a way to have got this sort of information out there, not in not with a view to throwing people under the bus, but just like it's an extra step in in that redemption story, and it would it would make it easier now that we if we weren't necessarily reflecting on twelve months ago, and we we could sort of not draw a line under it. I don't think we'll ever really draw a line under it. This will affect these guys for the rest of their lives, certainly the rest of their cricketing lives, but. Yeah, it does, as you say, just uh, just to leave a, a slightly bitter taste in the mouth. Well, it, it just doesn't square with the public record version that we've got. You know, we've got the sort of partial version from Cricket Australia, but there was never any willingness to provide any more information than that. And some of the assurances that were offered uh, might not sit comfortably if more information was released. So, I wonder in- if someone will ask, by the way. I mean, I don't know whether you will or I will. I haven't really thought about it till now. I've just said it. But, you know, say... 
Smith slash Warner front of the media, you know, first day of tour or one of the first days of tour in England when they're here for the World Cup or Ashes, whether we go, right, oh, here's your chance, guys. What happened? I mean, I don't know, maybe I will. But but if we were to, there's every chance we'll, you know, it'll start World War Three if we did. And and that's also, you know, that's behind the behind the curtain a bit here, but that's not in our interest to um, to start a massive blue with Cricket Australia on day one of the tour. I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting, interesting yeah, look at, to I, consider. I, I've thought about it and basically I think there's there's a an obligation to do it. Um, there's an obligation mm. to ask, but there won't be an answer. It's almost sort no. of on principle you have to ask um, and probably would be accused by some people of grandstanding yeah. for, the, for the act of asking, but it has to be asked. But these guys have all got their pat answers down so well where they'll basically say, oh, look, we've all been through this uh, so much. There's been too much focus and talk on that. It's all in the past. We're looking forward to the future and, and we're not going to go into it. That's what they'll say, and and there won't really be any value in sort of constantly hassling the same players about answers you're not going to get. But at the same time, I don't like the idea that if you work in media that you just roll over and, and stop asking questions that haven't been answered. No, there definitely is an obligation. Uh, just it'll, it'll, it'll be interesting if we did put it this way. I mean, you know, access is so important and, uh, and, uh, and, it's, and it's volatile. So, bit of a watch this space. Maybe we'll devise a, a cunning plan, Jeff, in a way that we can do it and not blow the joint up. Watch this space. Uh, the um, they they are in, in in the IPL are playing rather at the IPL at the moment. Warner did as you would fully expect him to do and absolutely dominated for Sunrisers Hyderabad, as he's done for many seasons last year. Notwithstanding, he is such an How amazing twenty twenty player, especially he just in the looked IPL. so crisp. Yeah, I mean, I had the great fortune of I guess two of the last three seasons commentating. Um, him for the Sunrisers Hyderabad and getting to watch him play, you know, three or four times uh, a month or whatever it would have been, uh, more than that, a um, couple of times a week actually. And, uh, and it, it, you know, that is, that is his safest space. That is the place where um, Warner um, feels at complete ease. Um, I love it when he bats with the hat off as well and just you know, in cruise control and, and just, uh, you know, he, he, putting to one side everything that's gone down, he is a joy to watch in the shortest form of the game. I love the fact that he's gone ahead and got himself an absolutely filthy beard. Oh yeah, the neck it, beard. During well, like with the neck I, bits as that, well. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's got he just got rid of the neck bits, I think, before the IPL. But that aforementioned um, interview, air quotes, that he did um, when he was in the UAE, um, he had the full neck beard. It's like he'd had a had a rough turn, you know, had a, had a bad couple of months, and uh, and uh, and um, yeah, it really wasn't taking care of the face, but I, I really liked it as well. It's it's a but it but it's it, a statement. It, it was the classic. It was the classic sort of um, you know I've spent a year in purgatory. You know I've, I've been <laughs> trapped on an island somewhere or or um, well, up a mountain finding myself, and then yeah, suddenly you came back. But but I also love the fact as I similarly have this genetic makeup where it, you know it's one color on top, and then suddenly comes out red when you when you <laughs> grow a beard. But it was it's like he was having a St Patrick's Day party on his face. It was absolutely incredible. Yeah, and Steve Smith also made twenty odd. I know we we kind of uh, we. we Probably ignored the rest of the Rajasthan Royals game due to the due to the uh, NRO, um, but um, he's back in back in the saddle as well. So Smith and Warner both at the IPL with a not as many Australians as ordinarily would be there, of course, with uh, Glenn Maxwell one notable um, omission deciding to sit it out this season. But um, they'll we'll, we'll keep a pretty close eye on the IPL through the course of the next seven weeks on the final word. I know it's only been on television in Australia for a couple of years. It's, it's a pretty big deal over here in the UK. Um, people are very engaged with it. Fantastic time of day. It starts at about three or four in the afternoon. Uh, people are watching, people are listening on the radio and so forth. So uh, I'll, I'll be sure to 
taking as, as much of that as is possible. Australia have three more one-day internationals to play in the UAE, then some 2020 cricket as well. We mentioned it just before, Jeff, but it's worth noting again that they've now won five on the spin um, away from home, which which seems crazy, but what a great time to, to hit their stride. And Finch, 153 uh, after another 100 in the first rubber. Um, so much for the form slump. Uh, can, can I just, just before we do one-day cricket, can I just read you a little bit from... Uh the the King's Cricket account wrote a piece on Cricket Seat 365 about David Warner's beard, which... My, my, um, the, are you talking about Alex Bowden, my favourite cricket writer in the world? There's just, if, 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 just not a subscriber line. To... There's, there's a line in this I need to share with you, or a couple. Please. Some people, I, I did read this piece, but go again. Some people suit beards and some people don't suit beards. All we can really state with confidence about David Warner is that he doesn't suit this particular beard. Warner's beard is not a sportsman's beard. It is a beard you might glimpse on a Bruges chocolatier or on an ominously mute member of a rural religious community in an old episode of The X-Files. <laughs> He's just working in the background while Mulder and Scully are speaking to someone else, but he turns away a bit too quickly when Scully spies him watching them. <laughs> Warner is a man of contradictions, and his beard is contradictory too. Somehow it manages to be both thick and sparse both bushy and transparent. It is undeniably too much, and yet at the same time, it is just as undeniably not enough. What a collision of passions. David Warner's beard, <laughs> Alex Bowden, who I mentioned before, is my favourite writer. I've been harassing him on Twitter for so many years. He thinks my love's a little bit odd. Uh, and and, uh, and the X-Files. Um, we, we've, uh, we've, we've hit the jackpot there in terms of our, our, our outside interests. <laughs> it's, 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 it's Venn Diagram City right in the middle there. <laughs> um, so wonderful stuff. Hey, um... So, oh, okay. Let's let, let's let's talk about one day cricket before we get yep. into um, the fun bits. Well, we? the one thing one thing that jumped out at me from the one day series, not so much on the field, but um, that that beautiful little tender moment between Adam Zampa and Marcus Stoinis. That um, just I missed this. Tell me what happened. I, I was asleep when it went down, and I it washed over me. So bring me so up. So it it's just a sort of it, a stationary camera during an ad break happens to be left on them in the stands. I think they have some sort of idea that, that they're on screen, so maybe they're hamming it up a bit. But um, it, they're sort of sitting next to each other, and Zampa just starts patting Stoinis on the head and then stroking his hair, um, and, and it's it's very sweet. And then he stops and rests his hand on, on Marcus's shoulder and Marcus sits there for about five seconds and then just moves in again and nudges him as a, like a dog does when he wants to keep being patted. And so, <laughs> and, and the stroking resumes and he's sort of, you know, patting his face and it's just a, a lovely, adorable, tender moment. And then there was all this kind of uh, sort of, oh, shit, don't know what's going on there kind of stuff from... From the commentary and Justin Langer looking bemused and, and everybody carrying on about it, like it, it, it was a real um, demonstration about the the rigidity of Australian masculinity. It was about oh, you're touching another bloke in the face. Don't know about that. Um, when actually, it's it's it, affection is nice, you know, tenderness is nice, friendship is nice. All of these things are good things. And wouldn't it be nice if we could live in a world where you could have those things? I'll I'll never forget the lesson about rigid masculinity, about just how much everyone lost their. Sh- shit at the uh, cricket at the Allen Border medal night when uh, Marcus Stoinis was wearing a cap they were like whoa check it out he's wearing a hat what's up with that hat he was wearing a, a flat cap and glasses and they were like whoa this outfit this is crazy it's like my god we are supposed to be so boring like if you're a bloke you are supposed to be the most boring thing 
Oh, like these are the tram tracks. Stay within them at all times, or you will be interrogated. Especially in Australian <laughs> cricket, which is why I find um, I find this shift amongst a, a certain group of Australian cricketers to be really interesting. Um, I'm going to write a piece about it. Uh, about I mean, this is shorthand, but Australia's woke revolution. Um, that there's a whole bunch of blokes in this team or on the periphery of this team who um, identify as like radical feminists. They identify, they donate meat. Look, quite a lot of vegans in there. You talk about the the interaction between Zampa and Stoinis. That's that's about the fourth time that Zampa's been involved in some sort of um, some sort of uh, moment like that uh, with his teammates. And he's not the only one. Uh, you know, Peter Siddle, I think Nick Maddinson, Kane Richardson. Um, there, there's a there's a there's a swathe of them, Marcus Stoinis. And, and I just find I I don't know much about it. I'm purely theorising from the outside looking in. But I'd love to talk to them about it about being like that. And I don't mean that in a you know that, that it's not compatible with cricket, but traditionally, um, you know, it, it's been thought to have been incompatible with with Australian cricket. So I want, I'm looking forward to getting their their perspectives uh, on on all of this, really, because I, I think there's a you know it, it definitely does um, run straight up against the the stereotypical side of Australian cricket that we spent so much time discussing uh, post Newlands. Um, yeah, it's quite a quite a lovely antidote to it. Leaving archaic things behind. Uh, speaking of that, what about putting names and numbers on the back of shirts in test matches? Reaction? Yeah, you know what? I well, <laughs> my only view, my only strong held view on this is the fact that I, as you know, collect cricket jumpers, cable knit cricket jumpers, mm-hmm. um, like the old fashioned version. I have about a dozen sitting at my parents' place from various different clubs I've played for, and I, I continue racking them up and. Um, Numbers don't really go on the back of those. So my sense is that if we move to this model, um, we probably won't have proper cricket jumpers anymore. So that was the first thing that came to my mind. I know that's a bit off. That, that is very niche. That that's the first but, thing but that for came me, to your yeah, mind. Yeah, I want to see. Uh, England only went back to real cricket jumpers two seasons ago after that monstrosity they they wore for the previous five or six years, which you'd usually seen an under twelves game where they before they you know before the parents are willing to splash out on a bit of wool. Um, and uh, yeah, that that was my first thought. So in terms of IDing the players, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to the view given by commentators like Simon Mann, who's run this case for a long time on Twitter, and you know Dan Norcross, our friend, who's been on the show before, and a range of other commentators in the UK. After Ali, Mark, uh, Ali Martin broke the story in the Guardian last week that it might be um, coming this way for the Ashes this year, that it will make players' identification easier, and therefore it's good for the game. You know, end of discussion. But I'm also, you know, drawn to the Gideon Hague argument from the Weekend Australia, where he's saying, well, you know, it. it it doesn't look that good. Um, who is it for? Uh, what's the reason for doing it? I, I, I think that you know, you know both arguments have merit, and and, I, and, I, and I'm I'm not willing to give a hot take as such. What about you? Yeah, well, it, it, it's sort of the, it's like no one's screaming out for it. You know, no one's there. There are no big petitions. No one's out the cricket going, oh bloody hell! I can't tell who this bastard is. <laughs> you know, you, you sort of figure it out because the the fast bowlers are big and. Uh, the slip cordon's usually the same. Well, the other thing is that if you... But that's a joy, isn't it? Isn't it a joy? I mean, this is, this is the point of Gideon's piece that's sung to me. Isn't it a joy over the course of a test match day or a first-class day if you're watching the county championship or, or the Sheffield Shield or, or any other domestic competition or even grade cricket? Like, as you go through that process of working out the different mannerisms of players from 100 and 150 metres away and, and slowly you know, familiarising yourself with where they field and so forth, I think that's kind of... That's part of the experience as a, as a spectator at Test Cricket. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, again, I, I see where it's instant 
you'll instantly be able to tell them with a number on the back or a name on the back. But yeah, I don't know. As Dan Bredig pointed out on Twitter, how many people remember the numbers that players wear apart from probably Shane Warne, 23, maybe Joe Root, 66, and Sachin Tendulkar, 99. Um, name another. Even... You might be able to... Was it, wasn't you know, Shane Warne's number... Wasn't that Michael Jordan's number anyway? Wasn't that... Yeah, that was the it? whole thing at the time. There was a commercial element to it when he was opening a pub or something. Yeah, so, but I'd, I'd venture that MJ was no. probably a, a bit more famous and a bit more remembered than Warney. Um, you know, well, on, on balance, so, so not in Melbourne, <laughs> not in Melbourne. But nonetheless, look, it's. I wonder if I'm being a bit of a niche wanker about it. So I do have that slight point of pride of, particularly when commentating a match and learning the players and making sure that you know who's what and who's where. There, there's a satisfaction to that, but that's also sort of insular and. Um, exclusionary that's that's uh, that kind of hipster thing of going well i know more about a subject than someone else so i get to feel good about it so i can definitely understand for a casual fan rocking up for a day at the cricket it's handy to know who the bloke on the boundary is in front of you but also you can't see most of the numbers from anywhere on the field i mean you and i have both called um say australian tour matches in england where they're playing a county side the county side wears numbers you can see about two of the numbers at any given time Maybe if you're behind the cordon directly, you can see three slips and you know who the keeper is, but you can't see anyone else because everyone's side on or facing you. And no matter where you are around the field, no more than about three fieldsmen will have their backs to you at any given time. So in that sense, it doesn't seem a whole lot of value. Sell plenty of shirts, though. Um, You'll you'll see. uh, I mean, you know, there's always that, that consideration as to why this might be part of it, flogging shirts, and I'm sure the broadcasters will have a hand in this as well, the television broadcasters specifically. I've seen mm. some Twitter back and forth about this. So, uh, yeah, look, uh, you know, again, I, I don't have a strong view. I probably fall on the side of I hope it doesn't happen, but if it does happen, it's not going to be something that drives me as wild as it might others. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 I sort of am drawn to the idea that there is something nice and something special about Test cricket that it doesn't always have to keep up with with fashionable trends in order to maintain its relevance. We saw the survey from the ICC, maybe the MCC, sorry, the MCC it was last week saying that Test cricket um, is, uh, is uh, you know, the premier form of the game according to 86% of respondents. And that that's partially informed by the fact that people like it as it is. Uh, so, I mean, the same arguments uh, can be made in advance for four-day Test cricket, right? Four-day Test cricket is probably more convenient for broadcasters, easier to condense the time the game's on and so forth. But isn't there something kind of, you know, nice about the way it is? I don't know. That makes me sound like I'm a conservative about cricket and I'm not. Um, we had a long conversation about running out that on striker to start this podcast. But, you know, I'm a fickle beast. There's there's like a, a celestial map app you can get on your phone where you, you hold it up, you hold the camera up to the sky and it uses your GPS and, and compass to work out which star is which and it shows you the names of the stars on the screen surely we could do that for cricketers so you could just hold your phone up to the field and the gps tracker would say that's curtis patterson and you'd be like oh i thought it was nicholas cage but i could tell it was curtis patterson because he's wearing a fresh baggy green yeah and he was standing you know what I mean? at gully. Like, right there there are, there are always ways uh i think we've got a short final short final we, we shouldn't wash over that because it is the um, it is the uh, the culmination of the, the four-day season, which we store so much faith in in terms of being the breeding ground for, for future um, test performances. And obviously, we, we follow the scores closely and the, and the ability to track it online these days is magnificent through all the feeds and so forth and clips and whatever else. But um, uh, the, the Sheffield Shield final will be at the Junction Oval, which is a... a uh, 
a, a, a triumph for Cricket Victoria and the state government having invested in all that money down in Junction Oval to renovate it. They've played Shield Finals in Tasmania and in the top end over the last few seasons, Victoria. This gives them an opportunity to play um, at a traditional cricket ground and uh, against a, a traditional rival in New South Wales. It should be fantastic. Well, we'll, we'll do a lot on the Shield final uh, next week once it's done. It, it's, it's uh, I think, particularly interesting for us to see how James Pattinson goes, uh, Victoria looking oh, yeah. like they're going to play a, a five-man attack and bat Pattinson at seven. So just suddenly, what we want for the Ashes. Just what we want for the Ashes. <laughs> suddenly <laughs> all of your Ashes dreams are coming true. <laughs> Do you see he's going to knots? He signed a contract to come back to Trent Bridge this season, James Pattinson. He's playing the white ball comp in the Royal London, then playing... Uh, in the county championship before the uh, before the Ashes, and I don't know, maybe he'll be on that A tour, just building quietly. I heard Adam White on RSN interviewing him a couple of days ago with Daniel Harford talking to James Pattinson. He's just sounding quietly confident about his prospects, and you know he took a truckload of wickets last week again for about um, about the fourth innings in a row. He's been in the wickets there for Victoria. So if he does it on the big stage, we know that Sheffield Shield finals historically in Ashes years have been a very strong guide as to who gets picked. Think about Ashley Nofke, Shane Watson in uh, in years gone by. So um, so it's it definitely a game worth watching in terms of Ashes selection come August. Well, yeah, Phil Hughes, Steve Smith uh, both had Phil Shield Hughes. finals featured yeah. pretty prominently in their selections. So of course, Trent Copeland will also be playing in that game, 44 Shield wickets at an average of 18 this season. So He, he might have jumped to the front of the queue of those seamers, right? So Peter Siddle, you know, due to the fact that Pattinson, Boland, Feckety have all been taking wickets. Siddle hasn't been as prominent. Very, very good season, but hasn't stood out as much as he otherwise would if he were playing with less, you know, a, in a weaker attack. Copeland on the other he ha- hand. He hasn't racked up big numbers, no. But Copeland has. Um, so maybe Copeland's ahead of Siddle. I know that Worrell's been injured. Sayers took wickets last week, despite the fact that we heard he's pretty much crocked and he's broken down forever. He's back in it too. So there are a few guys who are in the mixer. Of course, um, with Jai Richardson going down, you know, there could have been a, an argument that he would have been a suitable um, fast bowler who could have played the swing role as well. Like been a bit of a, uh, a bit of a dual threat in England due to the way that he, he moves the ball away from the right-handers. He may still the, uh, be. He might, yeah. he might still be, but uh, it might also give them um, you know, greater incentive to take that extra quick option or, or, or medium pace option if you like to be a specialist sort of England seam bowler and um, wouldn't that be great I just like the idea of them picking one of those guys I don't really care who it is yeah I, I would like it to be Siddle or Copeland but uh, you know one person that isn't out and out rapid who can balance the attack off when they arrive at the Ashes well Jack Bird 50 wickets in the season top the tally yeah um, I sort of feel like I forget him they probably think that he's run his race, but he's, it's not like he's been you know, overburdened with opportunity at the top level. Beautiful wickets too. Did you see that um, compilation that Cricket Tasmania popped on social media? I mean, these aren't, you know, these are, you know, these, it, it, it's not too dissimilar to what they put together for Chad Sayers last year um, when he took 50-odd wickets in the season. They are, you know, they are beautiful wickets, moving the ball away, collecting the shoulder of the bat, taking the cordon, hitting off stump. You know, trapping players like before when they when they get caught on the crease line, it's um yeah, it's a it's a very nice uh, set of, uh, of vision and um yeah, he's got to still be in the conversation. It'd be wrong for him not to be. Victoria, New South Wales contesting that final. We'll be watching that with interest and bringing you some detailed thoughts in the pod next week, as well as uh, the wrap up of all of the one dayers between Australia and Pakistan, just to see where things sit. Plus everything else that's going on around the cricketing world. We'll. 
see what comes up. We never know when there's going to be a raging controversy that we have to address. There's probably enough out of us for today. Remember that you can rate and review the podcast on the usual uh, wherever it is that you access it. I don't know where. I always get people messaging me saying, is it available on Blur? I'm like, I don't know. I've never heard of that. Um, so it's I don't... available. I, I assure you it's on all of the things yep. that... It's, it's on all the Jay, Jay Mueller from Bad Production, Bad Producer Productions, rather, who looks after the podcast, and sends it far and wide from the Omni platform. So you can definitely get it everywhere. But iTunes is the place. If you want to drop a review, that's where that's like the Aria chart. So if you're going to buy the CD, buy the CD single from the shop. You know what I mean? So <laughs> give us that support. Um, tell your mates in the usual way uh, about what we're doing, uh, and that would be lovely. And, and if you really enjoyed our, I don't know, four-hour conversation today about man catting, um, uh, please uh, jump on Patreon and uh, and subscribe there too. Yeah, patreon.com slash the final word if you want to become part of the community and and uh, bump us up to that hundred subscriber mark. Once we get there, there's going to be a you know confetti. There'll be a ticker tape parade. You get a car. You get a car. Yeah, we'll, we'll get open top, <laughs> open top parade through the streets of. He will be, be the king of Moomba. <laughs> they should have a lot more power, the kings and queens of Moomba. I've always advocated for the Moomba monarchs having a, a far greater say over public policy. Certainly in March. This is a for a lot longer conversation. Probably a different podcast as well. Was was Shane Warne king of Moomba once? He was a couple of years ago during the World Cup in 2015. Uh, Warne got that gig. It's a real uh, Meldrum every year. Real surprise when, when Shane Warne rolled out the guillotine as King of Moomba and enacted his sovereign powers for 24 hours. <laughs> Bring me the head of Steve War, he said. God, look down the wormhole. I don't mind having a long chat sometimes, Jeff. It's been a long one today and this has been great. That, it's good, good for us to catch up like this. Yeah, well, we've got to find out uh, what's, what's going on in each other's lives and each other's heads. Mm. We will leave it there. Thanks once again for your company. We'll be back with you again in approximately a week time. A week's time. I, I love how our version of weekly is not necessarily other people's version of weekly, but it's weekly-ish. Until next time, you've been listening to The Final Word. Thanks to Bad Producer and Kookaburra. And to you, we'll see you next time on The Final Word. I had to get